The Guardian. The Guardian Short Stories Podcast. I'm Nadine Gordimer, and I'm going to read a story by the great Jose Saramago. The title is The Centaur. The horse came to a halt. His shoeless hooves gripped the ground, slippery stones covering the riverbed, which was almost dry. Using his hands, the man cautiously pushed back the thorny branches, which obstructed his view of the plain. Day was breaking, far away, where the land rose, first in a gentle slope, for he remembered it being similar to the pass he had descended far north, before suddenly being broken up by a balsatic mountain ridge, rising up in a vertical wall, stood some houses which from a distance looked quite small and low and lights that resembled stars. Along the mountain ridge which cut out the entire horizon from that side, there was a luminous line as if someone had passed a light brush stroke over the peaks and because still wet, the paint had gradually spread over the slope. The sun would appear from that direction. One false move as he pushed back the branches and the man grazed his hand, He muttered something to himself and put his fingers to his lips to suck the blood. The horse retreated, stamping his hooves and swishing his tail over the tall grasses that absorbed the remaining moisture on the riverbank sheltered by overhanging branches, forming a screen at that black hour. The river was reduced to a trickle of water running between the stones where the riverbed was deepest and at rare intervals forming puddles wherein fish struggled to survive. The humidity in the atmosphere forecast rain and tempest, perhaps not today, but tomorrow, after three suns or with the next moon. Very slowly the sky began to light up. Time to find a hiding place in order to rest and sleep. The horse was thirsty. He approached the stream which seemed quite still beneath the night sky, and as his front hooves met the cool water he lay down sideways on the ground. Resting one shoulder on the rough sand, The man drank at his leisure, despite feeling no thirst. Above the man and the horse, the patch of sky that was still in darkness slowly moved, trailing in its wake the palest light, still tinged with yellow, the first deceptive hint of the crimson and red, about to explode over the mountain, as over so many mountains in different places, or on a level with the prairie. The horse and man got up. In front stood a dense barrier of trees, with defensive brambles between the trunks. The horse crossed the riverbed at an unsteady trot and tried to break through the entangled bushes on the right, but the man preferred an easier passage. With time, and there had been all the time in the world, he had learned how to curb the animal's impatience, sometimes opposing him with an upsurge of violence which crowded his thoughts or perhaps affected that part of his body where the orders coming from his brain clashed with the dark instincts nourished between his flanks where the skin was black. At other times he succumbed, distracted, and thinking of other things, 
things that certainly belong to this physical world in which he found himself, but not to this age. It would have been unwise to try and force an entry through the entanglement of brambles. There were so many scars on the horse's white coat. One particular scar, which was very old, traced a broad, oblique mark on his rump. When exposed to the blazing sun or when extreme cold made the hairs of his coat stand up, it was as if the flaming blade of a sword was striking that sensitive and vulnerable scar. Although well aware that he would find nothing there except a bigger scar than the others, at such moments the man would twist his torso and look back as if staring into infinity. A short distance away, downstream, the river bank narrowed. It was muddy at the bottom with a few stones. Around this pocket, as it were, a simple neck of the river that filled and emptied with it stood tall trees, black beneath the darkness, only gradually rising from the earth. If the screen formed by trunks and fallen branches were sufficiently dense, he could pass the day there, completely hidden from sight, until night returned when he could continue on his way. He had found a good spot to rest and sleep. Between the river and the mountain there was arable land, tilled fields, but that deep and narrow ditch showed no signs of being possible. He took a few more steps, now in complete silence. Startled birds were watching. He looked overhead and saw the utmost tips of branches bathed in light. The soft light coming from the mountain was now skimming the leafy fringe on high. The birds resumed their chirping. The light descended, little by little, a greenish dust changing to pink and white, the subtle and uncertain morning mist. The ground was covered with irises, a nice, tranquil refuge where he could spend the day sleeping. Overcome by the fatigue of centuries and millennia, the horse knelt down. Finding a position to suit both of them was always a difficult operation. The horse usually lay on his side, and the man did likewise. But while the horse could spend the entire night in this position without stirring, if the man wanted to avoid getting cramp in his shoulder and all down his side, he had to overcome the resistance of that great inert and slumbering body and make him turn over to the other side. As for sleeping on foot, the horse could, but not the man. And when the hideout was too confined, changing over from one side to another became impossible and the sense of urgency all the greater. The man could never stretch out on the ground, rest his head on folded arms and remain there studying the ants or grains of earth or contemplate the whiteness of a tender stalk sprouting from the dark soil. And in order to see the sky, he had to twist his neck, except when the horse reared up on his hind legs, lifting the man on high so that he could lean a little further back. Then he certainly got a much better view at the great nocturnal stars, the horizon and tumultuous meadow of clouds, or the blue, sunlit sky, the last vestiges of the first creation. The horse fell asleep at once. With his hooves among the irises and his bushy tail spread on the ground, he lay there breathing heavily at a steady rhythm. Semi reclined, and with his right shoulder pressed up against the wall of the ditch, the man broke off low-lying branches with which to cover himself. While moving, he could bear the heat and the cold without any discomfort, but when asleep and lying still, he soon began to feel cold, 
and so long as the heat of the sun did not become too intense, he could rest at his ease under the shade of the leaves. The man slowly closed his eyes. The smell of sap from the broken branches made him feel a little faint. He pulled one of the leafier branches over his face and fell asleep. He never dreamed like other men, nor did he ever dream as a horse might dream. During the hours of wakefulness, there were few moments of peace or simple conciliation. But the horse's dream, along with that of the man, constituted the centaur's dream. He was the last survivor of that great and ancient species of men-horses. He'd fought in the war in Greece, the first serious defeat suffered by him and his fellow centaurs. Once they had been defeated, the centaur had taken refuge in mountains whose name he'd forgotten until that fatal day when protected in part by the gods. Heracles had decimated his brothers and he alone had escaped. And that was the end of the centaurs. But contrary to the claims of historians and mythologists, one centaur survived. This self-same centaur who had seen Heracles crush Nessos to death with one terrible embrace and then drag his corpse along the ground, as Hector would later do with the corpse of Achilles, while praising the gods for having overcome and exterminated the prodigious race of the centaurs. Each day the centaur dreamt of fighting and vanquishing Heracles. In the centre of the circle of gods he reunited with every dream, he would fight arm to arm, using his croup to dodge any sly move on the enemy's part and avoid the rope whizzing between his hooves, thus forcing the enemy to fight face to face. His face, arms and trunk perspired as only a man perspires. The horse's body was covered in sweat. This dream recurred for thousands of years and always with the same outcome. He punished Heracles. Set firmly on his four hooves, as if there were stakes embedded in the earth, he lifted Heracles into the air and tightened his grip until he could hear the first rib cracking, then another, and finally the spine breaking. Heracles' corpse slipped to the ground like a rag, and the gods applauded. For thousands of years he roved the earth. For ages, long as the world itself remained mysterious, he could travel by the light of the sun. As he passed, people came out onto the roadside and threw garlands of flowers over the horse's back or made coronets which they placed on his head. Mothers handed him their children to lift into midair so they might lose any fear of heights and everywhere there was a secret ceremony. In the middle of a circle of trees representing the gods, impotent men and sterile women passed under the horse's belly. People believed this would promote fertility and restore virility. At certain times of the year, they would bring a mare before the centaur and withdraw indoors. But one day, someone who saw the man cover the mare like a horse and then weep like a man was struck blind for committing such a sacrilege. These unions bore no fruit. Then the world changed. The centaur was banished and persecuted and forced into hiding and other creatures too, such as the unicorn, the werewolf, men with cloven hooves, and those ants bigger than foxes, but smaller than dogs. 
For 10 human generations, these various outcasts lived together in the wilderness. But after a time, even there they found life impossible, and all of them dispersed. The centaur was now on his own. For thousands of years, as far as the sea would permit, he roamed the entire earth. But on his journeys, he would always make a detour whenever he sensed he was getting close to the borders of his native country. Eventually, there was no longer any land where he could live in safety. He began sleeping during the day and moving on at dusk, walking and sleeping, sleeping and walking, for no apparent reason other than the fact that he possessed legs and needed rest. He did not need food, and he only needed sleep in order to dream. And as for water... He drank simply because the water was there. The centaur, man and beast, is fast asleep. His entire body is at rest. The dream has come and gone, and the horse is now galloping within a day from the distant past, so that man may see the mountains file past as if they were travelling with him. Or he were climbing mountain paths to the summit in order to look down on the sonorous sea and the black scattered islands, the spray exploding around them as if they just appeared from the depths and were surfacing there in wonder. This is no dream. The smell of brine comes from the open sea. The man takes a deep breath and stretches his arms upwards while the horse excitedly stamps its hooves on protruding marble stones. Already withered, the leaves that were covering the man's face have fallen away. The sun overhead casts a speckled light on the centaur. The face is not that of an old man, nor that of a young man, needless to say, since we're talking about thousands of years. But his face could be compared with that of an ancient statue. Time has eroded it, but not to the extent of obliterating the features, simply enough to show that they are weather-bitten. A tiny, luminous patch sparkles on his skin, slowly edging towards his mouth, bringing warmth. The man suddenly opens his eyes as a statue might. With undulating movements, a snake steals off into the undergrowth. The man raises a hand to his mouth and feels the sun. At that same moment, the horse shakes his tail, sweeps it over his croup and chases off a gadfly, feeding on the delicate skin of the great scar. The horse rises quickly to his feet, accompanied by the man. The day is almost gone, and soon the first shadows of night will fall. The noise of the sea, which was not a dream, still resounds in the man's ears, not the real noise of the sea, but rather that vision of beating waves which his eyes have transformed into those sonorous waves which travel over the waters and climb up rocky gorges, all the way to the sun and the blue sky, which is also water. Almost there, he will advance as far as possible, even in daylight, even with the sun above the entire plain and exposing everything, whether man or beast. Once more, he had defeated Heracles in his dream, in the presence of all the immortal gods. The frontier is nearby. Walking along the deep and narrow ditch, the man can see the countryside from one end to the other. The lands now look abundant. He no longer knows where the village he had seen at daybreak has disappeared to. The great rocky mountains have become taller or perhaps drawn closer. 
The horse's hooves sink into the soft earth he is gradually climbing. The man's whole trunk is clearly out of the ditch. The trees space out, and suddenly, once in open country, the ditch comes to an end. With a simple movement, the horse makes the final descent, and the centaur appears in full daylight. The sun is to the right and shines directly onto the scar, which begins to ache and burn. The man looks back, out of habit. The atmosphere is stuffy and humid. Not that the sea is all that close. This humidity promises rain, as does this sharp gust of wind. The man wavers. For many years he's not dared to travel out in the open unless protected by the darkness of night. But today he feels as excited as the horse. He proceeds through scrubland where wildflowers give off a strong scent. The plain has come to an end and the ground now rises in humps, restricting the horizon or extending it ever more because these elevations are already hills and a screen of mountains looms up ahead. Bushes begin to appear and the central begins to feel less vulnerable. At this moment, a dog can be heard barking. The horse trembles nervously. The central breaks into a gallop between the two hills. But the man does not lose his sense of direction. They must lead south. The barking comes nearer. Bells can be heard ringing, and then a voice speaking to cattle. The centaur stopped to get his bearings, but the echo misled him, and then suddenly there's an unexpectedly humid and low-lying stretch of land. A herd of goats appears, and in front a large dog. The centaur stopped in his tracks. Several of the ugly scars on his body had been inflicted by dogs. The shepherd cried out in terror and took to his heels as if demented. He began shouting for help. There must be a village nearby. The man ordered the horse to advance. He broke a sturdy branch from a bush in order to chase away a dog which was barking its head off in rage and terror. But fury prevailed. The dog rapidly skirted some boulders and tried to grab the centaur sideways by the belly. The man tried to look back to see where the danger was coming from. But the horse reacted first and, turning quickly on its front hooves, aimed a vicious kick which caught the dog in mid-air. The animal was dashed against some rocks and killed. The centaur had often been forced to defend himself in this way, but this time the man felt humiliated. He could feel the strain of all those vibrating muscles in his own body, his ebbing strength, hear the dull thud of his hooves, but he had his back to the battle played no part in it, a mere spectator. The sun had disappeared. The heat suddenly abated and there was humidity in the air. The centaur cantered between the hills, still heading south. As he crossed a tiny stream, he saw cultivated fields and when he tried to get his bearings, came up against a wall. There were several houses on one side. Then a shot rang out. He felt the horse's body twitch as if stung by a swarm of bees. People were shouting and another shot was fired. To the left, splintered branches snapped, but this time no pellets hit him. He stepped back to regain his balance and with one mighty effort, he leapt over the wall. Man and horse, centaur, went flying over, four legs outstretched and drawn in. Two arms raised to the sky, which was still blue in the distance. More shots rang out, and then a crowd of men began chasing him through the countryside with loud cries and the barking of dogs. The centaur's body was covered in foam and sweat. He paused a moment to find the way, then the first heavy drops of rain began to fall. But the chase went on. 
The dogs were following an unfamiliar scent, but that of a deadly enemy, a mixture of man and horse, assassin hooves. The centaur ran faster and went on running until he perceived that the cries had become different and the dogs were barking out of sheer frustration. He looked back. From a fair distance, he saw the men standing there and heard their threats. And the dogs which had darted ahead now returned to their masters, but no one advanced. The centaur had lived long enough to know that this was a frontier, a border. Securing their dogs, the men dared not shoot at him. A single shot was fired, but from so far that the explosion could not even be heard. He was safe beneath the rain which was pouring down and opening up rapid currents between the stones. Safe on this land where he had been born. He continued travelling southwards. The water drenched his white skin, washed away the foam, the blood, the sweat, and all the accumulated crime. He was returning much aged, covered in scars, yet immaculate. Suddenly the rain stopped. The next minute all the clouds had been brushed away and the sun shone directly onto the damp soil, its heat sending up clouds of vapour. The centaur walked slowly as if he were treading powdery snow. He did not know the whereabouts of the sea, but there stood the mountain. He felt strong. He had quenched his thirst with rain raising his mouth to the sky and taking enormous gulps, with torrential downpour running down his neck and all the way down his torso, making it glisten. And now he was slowly descending the southern slope of the mountain. Below, a valley stretched all the way across, which, from a distance, seemed deceptively narrow. Along the valley he could see three villages a fair distance away from each other, the biggest of them in the middle where the road beyond headed south. Cutting across the valley to the right, he would have to pass close to the village. Could he pass there safely? He recalled how he had been pursued, the cries, the shots, the men on the other side of the border. That incomprehensible hatred. This land was his. But who were these men living here? The centaur continued to descend. Suffering from exhaustion, the horse trod cautiously and the man decided it would be just as well to rest before crossing the valley, and after much thought he decided to wait until dusk. Meanwhile he must find some safe spot where he might sleep and recover his strength for the long journey ahead before reaching the sea. He continued his descent, and just as he was finally about to settle down between two boulders, he saw the black entrance to a cave, high enough to allow the man and horse to enter. Using his arms and stepping gingerly with tender hooves on those hard stones, he entered the cave. It was not very deep, but there was enough room inside to move at one's ease. Supporting his forearms against the rocky surface of the wall, the man was able to rest his head. He was breathing deeply, trying to resist rather than accompany the horse's laboured panting. Sweat was pouring down his face. Then the horse pulled in his front hooves and allowed himself to slump to the ground which was covered with sand. Lying down or slightly raised, as was his wont, the man could see nothing of the valley. The mouth of the cave only opened to the blue sky. A profound peace filled the cave. Stretching one arm behind him, the man passed his hand over the horse's coat. His own skin transformed, or skin 
which had transformed into him. The horse quivered with pleasure. All his muscles distended, and sleep took possession of his great body. The setting sun began to light up the cave. The central dreamt neither of Heracles nor of the gods seated in a circle. Nor were there any more visions of mountains facing the sea, of islands sending up spray, or of that infinite and sonorous expanse of water. Cast into darkness, the cave had become enormous, and the drops of water fell like round stones onto the rim of a bell. It was already darkest night when the moon appeared. The man woke up. He felt the anguish of not having dreamt. For the first time in thousands of years, he had not had a dream. Had it abandoned him the moment he returned to the land of his birth? Why? Some omen? What oracle could tell? The horse, more remote, was still asleep but stirring restlessly. From time to time he would move his hind legs as if he were galloping in dreams, not his, for he had no brain, or only on loan, but stirred by the willpower in his muscles. Resting his hand on a protruding stone, the man raised his trunk, and as if sleepwalking, the horse followed him effortlessly, with flowing movements which seemed weightless, and the centaur emerged into the night. The moon cast its light over the entire valley, so much light that it could not possibly be coming from that simple little moon on earth. Celine, silent and spectral, but the light of all the moons elevated above an infinite succession of nights where other suns and lands without these or any other names rotate and shine. The centaur took a deep breath through the man's nostrils. The air was soft, as if it were passing through the filter of human skin, and it had the smell of damp soil that was slowly dying out between the labyrinthine embrace of roots securing the world. He descended into the valley by an easy, almost tranquil route, his four equine limbs harmoniously swaying, swinging his two male arms, moving step by step without disturbing a stone or risking any more cuts on some sharp ridge. And so he finally reached the valley. Ahead there was a wide river. On the other bank, slightly to the left, stood the largest of the villages on the southern route. The centaur advanced out into the open, followed by that single shadow without equal in this world. He cantered through the cultivated fields, choosing beaten paths to avoid trampling the plants. Between the strip of cultivated land and the river, there were scattered trees and signs of cattle. Picking up their scent, the horse became restless, but the centaur went on heading for the river. He cautiously entered the water, using his hooves to feel the way. The water became deeper until it came up to the man's chest. Anyone watching there would have seen a man crossing the ford with upraised arms, his shoulders and head those of a man with hair instead of a mane. Concealed in water walked a horse. The man's entire torso emerged from the water, then the horse appeared, and the centaur mounted the river bank. He passed underneath some trees and on the threshold of the plain stopped to get his bearings. He remembered how they pursued him on the other side of the mountain. He recalled the dogs and shots, the men and their cries, and he felt afraid. He now wished the night were darker. The man thought everyone in those parts must already know of the centaur's existence, 
for the news must surely have travelled across the border. He realised he could not cross the countryside in a straight line in broad daylight and slowly began following the river, protected by the shade of the trees. Perhaps ahead he might find a more favourable terrain where the valley narrowed and ended compressed between two high hills. Suddenly he heard the lapping of water. He remained still and listened. The noise came back, died away, then returned. On the ground covered with couch grass, the horse's steps became so muffled they could not be heard amidst the manifold murmurings of tepid night and moonlight. The man pushed back the branches and looked towards the river. There was clothing lying on the river bank. Someone was bathing. He pushed the branches further back and saw a woman. She emerged from the water completely naked and her white body shone beneath the moonlight. The centaur had seen women many times before, but never like this, in this river and with this moon. On other occasions he'd seen swaying breasts and hips, that dark spot in the centre of their body. On other occasions he'd seen tresses falling over shoulders and hands tossing them back, such a familiar gesture. But his only contact with the world of women was that which might please the horse, perhaps even the centaur, but not the man. And it was the man who looked and saw the woman retrieve her clothes. It was the man who pushed through those branches, trotted up to her, and as she screamed, lifted her into his arms. This too he'd done on several occasions, but there were so few and over thousands of years. A futile action, merely frightening, an act which could have resulted in madness, and perhaps did. But this was his land, and the first woman he had seen there. The centaur ran alongside the trees, and the man knew that further ahead he would put the woman down on the ground. He frustrated, she terrified, the woman intact, he only half-man. Now a broad path came close to the trees and ahead there was a curve in the river. The woman was no longer screaming, simply sobbing and trembling, and at their moments they heard other cries. On rounding the bend, the centaur came to a halt before a small group of low houses concealed by trees. People were gathered outside. The man pressed the woman to his chest. He could feel her firm breasts, her pubes, at the spot where his human body disappeared and became the horse's pectorals. Some people fled. Others threw themselves forward, while others ran into their houses and reappeared carrying rifles. The horse got up on his hind legs and reared into the air. Terrified, the woman let out another scream. Someone fired a shot into the air. The man realised the woman was protecting him. Then the centaur headed for the open countryside, avoiding any trees that might impede his movements, and still clutching the woman in his arms, he skirted the houses and galloped off across the open fields in the direction of the two hills. He could hear shouting coming from behind. Perhaps they decided to pursue him on horseback, but no horse could compete with the centaur as demonstrated in thousands of years of constant flight. The man looked behind. The persecutors were still some way off, some considerable way off. Then, gripping the woman under her arms, he gazed at her whole body stripped naked under the moonlight and said to her in his former tongue, in the language of the forests of honeycombs, of the white columns of sonorous sea, of laughter on the mountains, don't hate me. And then put her down gently on the ground. 
but the woman did not escape. From her lips came words the man was capable of understanding. You're a centaur. You exist. She placed her two hands on his chest. The horse's legs trembled. Then the woman lay down and said, Cover me. The man saw her from above, stretched out in the form of a cross. For a moment, the horse's shadow covered the woman. Nothing more. Then the centaur moved sideways and broke into a gallop, while the man began shouting and clenching his fists at the sky and the moon. When his pursuers finally reached the woman, she had not stirred, and when they carried her off, wrapped in a blanket, the men carrying her could hear her weep. That night, the whole country learned of the centaur's existence. What had first been treated as some rumour across the border to keep them amused, now had reliable witnesses, among them a woman who was trembling and weeping. While the centaur was crossing this other mountain, people came from the nearby villages and towns with nets and ropes and even with firearms, but only to scare him off. He must be captured alive, they said. The army was also put on the alert. They were waiting for daylight before sending up helicopters to search the entire region. The centaur kept undercover, but could hear the dogs barking at frequent intervals, and in the waning moonlight even caught sight of men scouring the mountains. When the centaur travelled all night in southerly direction, and when the sun came up, the centaur was standing on top of a mountain from where he could view the sea. Way in the distance, nothing but the sea. Not an island in sight, and the sound of a breeze with the smelt of pines, not the lashing of waves or the pungent odour of brine. The world appeared to be a wilderness waiting to be populated. It was not a wilderness. Suddenly, a shot rang out, and then, forming a wide circle, men emerged from behind the stones, making a great din, yet unable to hide their fear as they advanced with nets and ropes, nooses and staffs. The horse reared into the air, shook its front hooves, and swung round in a frenzy to face his enemies. The man tried to retreat. Both of them struggled behind and in front, and the horse's hooves slipped on the edge of the steep slope. They scrambled anxiously, seeking some support. The man's hands, too, but the cumbersome body lost its footing and fell into the abyss. Twenty metres below, a jutting edge of rock, inclined at just the right angle, polished by thousands of years of cold and heat, sun and rain, hewn by wind and snow, cut through the centaur's body at the very spot where the man's torso became that of the horse. The fall ended there, and at last the man remained, stretched out on his back and looking up at the sky, an ever-deepening sea overhead. A sea with tiny, motionless clouds that were islands and immortal life. The man turned his head from one side to the other. Nothing but endless sea and interminable sky. And then he looked at his body. It was bleeding. Half a man. A man. And he saw the gods approaching. It was time to die.
Now here's Lisa Allardyce, editor of Guardian Review. Nadine, choosing a story out of all the stories must have been more difficult for you because I think alone among our readers you have in fact edited a collection of stories, wonderful stories from writers all around the world, of which The Centaur is one. Why did you choose this one in particular? Well, I think now that you've heard it, you can see why. It is in many ways a a unique story. The whole idea that here is a creature imagined, as we all imagine something that is um, higher and better and different from a man. And here is this dream of um, a creature that is half horse, half man. It has the physical swiftness of the horse and then the mental complexity of the man. The symbolic theme that seems clear from the half-horse, half-man is internal conflict. Jose Saramago is is known for writing political parables. Is this a more elemental one, do you think? Well, I can't speak for him, but I think it just shows the, um, the depths of the human confusion that he faces and that he deals with in many ways and in this way of this extraordinary fable. It's extraordinary, the slow build of it, of this horse going through almost like the thousands of years, yes. and, and it builds very slowly, mm. taking us through until he gets home to his own country. And, of course, the man who here has become more or less than a man, whichever way you look at it, there he is knowing that he's half a man. There's a bit which is, makes it very clear, the conflict between the physicality and the man who is the, the thinking man and the horse, which is clearly... Yes, well, physical. I think that this is... Um, a wonderful way of looking into the conflict between what one's body desires and dictates, sexual desire and all the others that go along with it, really. Sexual desire as part of um, power, one way or another. Because if through sexual desire you take possession, whether you're a woman taking possession of the man, people never talk about that, but there it is, or the man taking possession of the woman... This is in conflict, indeed, with um, many of your other ideals about how you ought to approach another being. It's also a very moving portrait of loneliness and isolation, isn't it? Yes. There's so much in that short story, as much as 20 novels and 20 poems in this one little story. Which is always the way with the best short stories. Could you just tell us a little bit about your collection, Telling Tales, where I think you have... So many countries represented in the short story writers that you've chosen. It was put together to raise funds for HIV. It comes out of my many years of reading and my great admiration, enthusiasm, more than pleasure, the way, more than the pleasure that my life has been opened by the voyages of discovery into the meaning of life, of being a human being and, and living in this world. That... Uh, All these different writers, in in completely different ways, have encompassed within the pages of a short story. The story comes to, to me, and I would extend that and say to anybody, like an egg. There's a shell, complete. There is the white, and there is the yolk. And, of course, the yolk is the source of life in the egg, isn't it? The sort of continuity of life. A chicken is going to be born of that, that yellow part of the the yolk. So there is your whole story, comes to you completely. Whereas a novel is something, in my own case, I always know the beginning and the end. And I may know of certain stopping places on the way, but one works then towards it. It comes to you as you go deeper into 
what the lives of the characters that would be, so now they're called characters, the lives of your people would be. And sometimes when you come to the end of what you think is going to be stage one, then what is going to happen to them then and how they're going to conduct their lives and their thought and their emotions has changed because of what they've gone through in that first stage. So the, a novel is something that, that happens in, in stages. I don't know anybody who can encompass the whole meaning and purpose of your novel before you write it. Whereas in a short story, it is there, it is that egg. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.